Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 podcast kit, visit shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like you. Hi, this is Amanda Raymond, writer, director, producer, and you're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome to Skull Rock Podcast, where every week we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, as well as what's streaming, what's in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Go, pop culturist, longtime Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars fan, and you can email me, aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossert, artist, filmmaker, author, and daredevil. And welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Al John, uh, I know you're slightly under the weather, uh, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make <laughs> you talk too much, but please interject as you feel feel fit to do. Thank you so much. (laughs) Hey, listen, I got to tell our listeners, we've got a fantastic couple of shows uh, queued up. Uh, We're going to be talking to animation legend, Willie Ito. That's right. Willie Ito. We're talking about a guy who was involved in the Flintstones, the Jetsons, Scooby-Doo, and so much more in the heyday of Hanna-Barbera. Uh, he also uh, uh, worked at a variety of other studios. So we're going to start our conversation with him with part one of our interview with uh, animation legend Willie Ito. He is so, uh, so cool. What a what a I mean, yeah. just a, cool as a cucumber and had so many great stories. Yeah, super, super nice guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm excited about that. And, um, you know, we got a lot of stuff to talk about on this show. We certainly as do. Always. Yeah, we certainly do. I mean, other than having uh, the legend Willie Ito on the show, we've got some news as well. And uh, Dave, I don't know if you have any listener email or Instagram comments like you do <clears throat> normally, but... Um, if you do, feel free to, to rattle those off. But, uh, you know, I, I always get these little notes from people saying, I love the show. Keep doing it. You know, can't wait to listen. Things like that. So it's always fantastic to hear from our listeners. And uh, I just encourage people to to drop us a note on Instagram or Facebook and let us know what you think. Go ahead and do that. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the show. We're on every podcast platform out there. So feel free to do that. But now it's time for Skull Rock Podcast. This week in Disney. You know what? I forgot yeah. what we're streaming this week. This yeah. is two weeks in I a mean, row. I totally on. jumped the gun, but 
<laughs> no, you're not feeling well. You're hitting a, you're, you're, you're just sitting there slapping buttons. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Lord, this is true. Okay, Dave, what did? Wait, hold on. Now I've got to get the real, real deal stinger here. What are we streaming this week? What did you see in the theater this week, Dave? Well, you know, I went and saw Creed 3, mm. and we're going to talk about the box office when we get to the news, but I'll talk about the movie. And I got to tell you, Michael B. Jordan uh, not only stars in this, but directed it. Wow. And uh, I have to say, it was a good movie. I really enjoyed it. And you know who's a standout in this film, aside from Michael uh, B. Jordan, who okay. was really terrific? Okay. Jonathan Majors. Is that right? Yeah. Now, Jonathan Majors, if you recall, was in Ant-Man. That's right. As the villain. Yes. Okay. He he plays uh, sort of the rival, the opponent to uh, Michael uh, B. Jordan's uh, Adonis creed yeah and uh i gotta tell you just a great film i saw it in imax uh really enjoyed this movie i think it was well done uh you know there's a couple things that i could sit there and say yeah you didn't really need that little story edge you know um if you lost it you could have tightened the movie up but you know what i have to say overall very enjoyable performances are fantastic uh and it's just a it's just a solid movie in this franchise well that's good to hear i mean they have so many great you know actors in this jonathan majors is king of course and from quantum mania is really great but uh you know it's great to see him out there you know kicking some butt out there you know Hollywood, I, I have so. to tell you with jonathan majors i think he's he's a really really great actor he, he's an actor to watch like, I want to see him in more things and I want to see what kind of range he has. Yeah, sure. You know, but mm -hmm. but I have to tell you, really well done film. Uh, very enjoyable. If you like the Rocky films and, and Creed one and Creed two, you're going to love this film. So I encourage you to go out and see it. We'll talk about the box office when we get to the news. I also watched the first episode of uh, season three Mandalorian. There you go. Uh, and I, and I have to say, um, uh, I think this week was Pedro Pascal week, you know, it certainly was. Because, <laughs> yeah, because I, I watched, uh, the first episode of Mandalorian on Disney plus, which I just love the show. I think it's so well done. Um, and, and just really incredible. Um, and, uh, I also watched the first couple of episodes of the last of us. There you go. Also starring Pedro Pascal. Yes. It's and I have to tell you, I loved it. Uh, yeah. It does, and and by the way, it, do, it does have that walking dead vibe to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was, you the don't whole, know, you, yeah. yeah, you don't know what's going to pop out at the, uh, you know, at the last moment, you know, uh, it, it's, you know, you're waiting for stuff. And I have to say, those first two episodes really, I we got into it. There you go, perfect. I love it. Yeah, so we're we're going to continue watching The Last of Us, um, and then to top it off, we watched a couple of Jesse Stone movies, which star Tom Selleck. They're based on the Jesse Stone books by Robert Parker, uh, and you know they're like ninety minute, two hour, uh, made for TV movies. 
uh, as Tom, Tom Selleck battles some demons, but he's uh, he's the police chief in in this fictitious small town called Paradise, Massachusetts. And, you know, each one of these movies, he's he's solving some sort of heinous crime. Nice. You know, yeah, yeah. and I have to say, you know, part of part of me liking these films and they were made between like 2005 and 2015. There's a bunch of them. I, I think there's like seven or eight of them. But um, I watched a couple. I love the fact that they're shot on the coast of New England. Uh, actually, Nova Scotia, I should say. Most of it's shot in Nova Scotia. But uh, I have to say. Uh, very enjoyable. Love the cinematography. Love the scenery, uh, and um, uh, enjoy the stories. Uh, Tom Selleck is terrific in whatever he's in. I love it. I love Tom Selleck a lot too. He's uh, he's great. So that's good to know. Yeah, and that's that's what I watched this week. Well, right on. I'm like you, Dave. I you know spent time with The Mandalorian, and I'm so happy to kind of have that show back on the air. And uh, it is Star Wars done well. That's all I can say about it. I mean, Star Wars is, to me, really firing on all cylinders. You had, you know, the Andor show. You have, you know, Bad Batch animated. You've got The Mandalorian. So uh, I can't wait to see what happens this season. I also, of course, because, you know, I am a Trekkie, Trekker, however you want to classify me. But uh, I'm still digging Picard. Um, This is Star Trek done right, too. And it's great to kind of revisit those characters that I've come to know and love uh, from the next generation. So if you're a fan of that, uh, they have some really cool stuff that happened this week's episode, like flashbacks and de-aging. And it's just uh, pretty neat. And yeah, uh, yeah. and I have I have Picard on my list. You oh, know, good. I'm I'm gonna get to it because I actually uh, really liked uh, Star Trek: Strange New Worlds. Oh yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, I thought that was really well done. Very good. Well, I think you're gonna love this, Dave. I think you're gonna love it. <clears throat> awesome. So, uh, another show that um, my wife and I started watching is Kings of Pain on History Channel. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know there is actually a pain index um, from nature. I guess there's some nature survival pain index where you, you get stung or bitten by a certain animal (laughs) and it's measured in this pain index, you know, and some of them have poison venom and this, that, and the other, if you run into it, you know, this is how you're going to survive it. So um, this is a crazy show, Dave. I mean, you have people getting bitten by, you know, stung by uh, red ants and, and, uh, and, and are they doing this on purpose? They're doing it on purpose to, to measure the pain scale of all of these different uh-huh. animals. And That's crazy. so these, I mean, you know, two fully grown men, you know, are there. And one of them had this, this kind of, um, you know, what, what is that? It's not a, not a Gila monster. It's a, like a Komodo dragon. Right. And you know, the Komodo dragon is very elusive and very reclusive. They're, big. They're, They're big. huge, right? Um, this guy, these guys go out there, they find it in Africa. Well, this is the African version of the Komodo dragon. And they find it, of course. You know, you have to stay away from the the claws and, and the bite. But uh, they literally put their arm out there. They capture the thing. They put their arm there and they get bitten. And like one of the guys, the 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 dragon did not want to let go and was literally there you know, 
you know, with his teeth hitting his bone for like 10 minutes. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, that, that's crazy. Insane. But, but by the way, I have to tell you, I did see a Komodo uh, dragon in the wild. Mm. Really? Uh, I, and it, I was, uh, oh gosh, it's gotta be 25 years ago. Oh my goodness. Uh, in uh, Queensland, Australia. Was it one of those was, uh, Disney field trips? No, no, not at all. This was a vacation. Oh. We were we were on a dirt road uh going through the jungle to a resort in uh Port Douglas mm. uh on the coast of northern Queensland. Uh <clears throat> and uh we came around a bend and there was a Komodo dragon in the roadway. Oh no. And it, it, the driver slowed down. And this thing looked at us and then scampered off into the jungle. That's good. It didn't go toward you. No, no. But it was amazing to see it, you know, in person like that like in the wild. Deceptively fast. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, if you, if you ever wanted to see Komodo that is, well, <laughs> my Komodo dragon story. <laughs> Meanwhile, on Skull Rock Podcast, Dave's run-ins with nature. <laughs> <laughs> it's like mutual Omaha's wild kingdom up in here. Oh, That'd be great. Geez. Actually, uh, any, any other animals you happen to run into up close and personal, Dave? <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, I've seen, I've seen a lot over the years. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool. The whole Queensland thing. That's, that's yeah, awesome. I mean, I, I went, I went diving um, on the great barrier reef while I was there, uh, nice. which was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, and by the way, I went diving on stingray city in the Cayman Islands. Is that right? That's cool. Yeah. It, it was an, area that's just infested with stingrays uh and it was pretty cool to be you know swimming around with these things it was, uh, it was wild that's very cool well hopefully well you you're, you live to tell about it you didn't get I any live to tell the tale. you live to tell yeah, the tale that's awesome <laughs> well apparently these guys live to tell the tale uh check out kings of pain if you're interested in like the most the most um hideous rare creatures out there in nature you know, and these bugs are insane. Some of the bugs that they have on there, they're just super huge and, you know, like going down in the rainforest and getting bitten by that. And of course they have a f whole professional crew there that is ready. Of, of there medics. With, of the medics. Oh yeah. They have medics and all kinds of people there. Just that, that, it just sounds like an insane show. It is. It is. I mean, they have <laughs> animals here called Goliath bird eater, which is a huge, you know, it's a pain 14 out of 30 in the pain index rating. It's a huge spider. I mean, it's a big tarantula and you have something like the executioner wasp, which is a 14.5 out of 30. And that thing is freaking huge. I mean, <laughs> it's insane. And of course the paint on their face, um, scorpions and lionfish and just all kinds of stuff. My God. Yeah. So, uh, if you ever wanted to see those rare animals, uh, check out Kings of okay. Pain on History Channel. Okay. Alrighty. And well, now we're going to have a murder wasp on there. They do have a murder wasp on there. <laughs> Skull Rock Podcast. This week in Disney and pop culture. Oh, yeah. Creed wins at the box office. How about that? Yeah, Historical I mean, this was a, fran a franchise high for yeah. an opening weekend. Nice. You know, and, and I have to say some of the uh, uh, previous uh, Creed films uh, opened on Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, but here we are, the beginning of March, uh, and Creed 3 opens uh, to 58 plus million uh, for the weekend, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, a franchise best. 
which is fantastic. Well, it can't get any better than, you know, um, cocaine bear, you know, last week, cocaine bear was number one. It's like, <laughs> well, and, and, and by the way, last weekend, cocaine bear mauled Ant-Man. Yeah. 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 At the box office. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, those cocaine bears. It's yeah. hilarious. But anyway. But yeah, Creed 3. Uh, highly recommend it uh, if you want to see a good uh, boxing film uh, and some great actors. Uh, go see Creed 3. Very good. I like that endorsement. I'm going to have to go see it now. Uh, the second Bob Iger returned to Disney, he was going to be a temporary measure. We've been talking about this on the show. Uh, he is there to find his replacement, if you will. And it looks like there's been rumors of people doing that um, names that are included on the list Dave that you know uh, maybe know is Kevin Mayer the executive lead over at the Disney consumer efforts uh, you also have uh, Dana Walden that I've mentioned on, on several different podcasts as well who's the co-chief of Disney Entertainment but this was an interesting one the NBA commissioner Adam Silver one of the front runners um, Silver is currently under contract with the basketball league until 2024 uh, what do you think of some of these uh, these names? Have you heard of them? Listen, bit, you know? I, I will tell you right off the bat, I don't know much about Adam Silver, but I look, he, he's not somebody who's been in the Disney universe. Uh, and I think for a company like the Walt Disney Company, you need somebody who is steeped in the Disney culture, the mm -hmm. Disney history, knows the company. It needs to be somebody on the, uh, you know, inside or somebody who had been on the inside, you know, like a Kevin Mayer is not at the company anymore. Uh, he's, he's a CEO at, at another media company, you know, he, he, he knows Disney, you know, Alan Bergman knows Disney, Dana Waldman knows Disney, you know, Jimmy Pataro knows Disney, you know, these are the people that they have to have that sensibility for the culture and the history of the company. I don't think you could just bring in a quote manager CEO from, you know, a consumer products company or from, you know, the NBA and say, here, run this company. This, you know, the Walt Disney company is not like any other company and people need to realize that. That is a, it is a different company. You know, it's got different, different arms about it. There's a whole legacy that's involved and it needs to have that connective tissue, you know, from generations of, of great storytelling and, and all the heart that you need to put in it. And I find it great when someone from the bench that is as deep as Disney's gets promoted up because they've yeah. spent so much time there at the company, um, you know, performing at a high level, uh, taking the reins. So, yeah, yeah I, I don't I, I don't know. I, I will tell you, if they took somebody who, you know, like uh, an Adam uh, Silver from the NBA or uh, brought in, uh, uh, you know, a, a former CEO of Procter and Gamble or something like that, that'd be the beginning of the end of the Walt Disney Company as mm -hmm. we know it. Mm -hmm. Then it just becomes a commodity business. You know what I mean? And uh, and I, I really do think that that hurts the legacy of the company. Um, I think they have to be careful with this company. There's no other company in the world like the Walt Disney Company and what it does. You know what I mean? Uh, and you can't just bring in somebody 
who doesn't understand the history, the legacy, the values of this company and uh, and just throw them into the into the C-suite. You yeah, know, absolutely. I agree with that 100 um, percent. I didn't put this on our news, but I thought it would be great if I brought it up is that there are still rumors that Disney's going to be selling the remainder of Hulu to Universal, Dave. Did you did you see that pop up in the news? Yeah, this week? you know something, look, uh, you know, Bob Iger said everything's on the table. Um I I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens, you know. Um they they do have a a fair bit of debt on their balance sheet. Uh uh, from the Fox acquisition, but also from uh, the company being shut down during the pandemic, right? Uh, they need to pay some of that down. Now, the parks are getting back, you know, are, are have come back strong because the parks are off the charts right now, you know? Um, you just go down to Disneyland, and I'm sure the same is at Disney World, you know? there There's crowds of people showing up. So, you know, from my standpoint, I think Bob is smart for just saying everything's on the table and look at it. That said, I do think that Disney Plus needs to have an adult tile. And that's what Hulu is. Yeah, 100 you know? percent. Yep. And 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 by the way, there's nothing wrong with having general entertainment. Yep. You know, I mean, you know, they're they're talking about, well, we want to be focused on this, that or the other thing. That's fine. That's what Disney Plus is. Disney Plus should be the focus of the family uh, um, entertainment, you know, the G rated content, so to speak. But Hulu as a tile is where you put your adult oriented stuff, Mm -hmm. you know. And uh, and so for me, I think, you know, if you bought the Fox library, I think you should keep Hulu. Mm-hmm. And if you were just going to focus on Disney Plus and just the Disney family brand, well, you know, Disney has a massive family entertainment library. You know, why did you buy Fox then? Yeah. You know, so yeah. that's my two cents on it. I, I hope they keep Hulu and I hope they purchase the remaining portion of it from Universal. That's what I think they should do. I have a feeling that if they do sell off their their portion of Hulu, they're going to, uh, you know, their subscriber uh, base is going to drop. Yes. Yep. It's going to drop. So, I enjoy Hulu, but I can totally see this happening. And I don't know if this is how it would work with the, their business units, but I can totally see them selling back to NBC Universal and, Peacock is dead. They bring Hulu into the fold and they work out some kind of deal with the uh, Marvel Universal properties, Hulk, Namor, maybe something with the uh, the theme park, you know, yeah. and, and kind of doing that deal so that they can have all of their Marvel characters play in the same universe now because that's kind of holding them back right now. But I can see that being part of it. I don't know if, how that would work with their business units, but uh, if they do happen to do that, that'd be interesting for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, yep. you know what? Well, I, only time's going to tell. Uh, this is all going to unfold over the next twelve <laughs> months or so. I think they they have to make a move by January of twenty four. There you go. We'll see what yeah. happens. All right, Dave. Chris Rock breaks the silence. He addresses the Will Smith slap that was heard around the world. He took it like a champ, like Manny Pacquiao. That's what he said in in more colorful words. Uh, Dave, have you checked out his new special? 
there on Netflix. Um, I have not. I want to see it. I do did too. It, did it drop? Did it drop over yeah, the weekend? It's dropped it now. Did. Yeah, it's here now. I've added it okay. to the queue. I, yeah, I'm definitely going to watch it. Yes, his special called Outrage is live on Netflix. And Rock, uh, Chris Rock, dedicated the last 10 minutes of the special addressing not only the situation at the Oscars, but things surrounding Will and Jada's marriage and how they address infidelity on Red Table Talk. I cannot wait to hear and see this. Chris Rock is great. I'm a fan of his comedy. I'm a fan of his acting. I thought he did great in, in the last Saw film installment, a little bit more serious for Chris Rock. Um I cannot wait to see this special, Dave. You know, neither can I. And I have to tell you, I did read an article about it uh, uh, on the weekend uh, about some of the things he said. And I I have to tell you, I, I have to say that Chris Rock is a complete gentleman and a stand-up individual. He's funny. He's a good actor. I... I really admire him and the fact that he remained silent for nearly a year on this topic, nearly a year, I think, you know, speaks volumes to his character and the fact that he's coming out now on basically the year anniversary, you know, because the Oscars are, you know, uh, uh, a week from, uh, I guess it's next Sunday, isn't it? Oh yeah. yeah. It's next Sunday, right? So there's the Oscars. By the way, I I did vote over the weekend there you uh, go. my my Academy Award ballot uh, for the Oscars which are on the 12th. Um I can't talk about what I voted on, not going to, but I just I will tell you that I voted over the weekend and that voting for the Oscars closes for members on Tuesday. Uh-huh. That's tomorrow, the 7th. Okay, so that's, you know, that's, you know, all I have to say, though, is that, you know, Chris Rock, I can't wait to see this. I'm glad he addresses it. Um, I I think he's a better man than most because I think that Will Smith should have been taken out of the auditorium last year and yep. should not have been allowed to accept his Academy Award. Yep. Yep. Exactly. You know, that's what I think. <clears throat> yeah, I agree. I agree. But. I can't wait to see what uh, the fallout is from this special and how he says it, because I think he's incredibly smart. Like you said, I think he's smart and he's very funny. And uh, I'm a big Chris Rock fan, have been since day one. So looking forward to the special for sure. Yeah. And, you know, if someone had said something really funny that I think it would be great to have Will and Chris host the Oscars together. Because <laughs> oh, they need all the eyeballs they can get, really. I mean, who wow. wouldn't want to see that happen? You know? uh, yeah, you, but you you want to know something? I think that uh, I think the Academy should have done a lifetime ban on Will Smith uh, yeah. for that behavior. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, look, hey, if, if Brad Pitt had gone up on stage and slugged uh, Chris Rock, it'd be a very different uh, situation. There'd be very different outrage, you know, mm-hmm. because. Because Brad's white and Chris is black, but because you've got Will Smith and Chris Rock both being black, there there just seemed to have been not as much in the way of outrage about this. I don't understand it. Now you know I what what I don't what I don't get is bad behavior is bad behavior. Call it out. Yeah, and exactly. there is no excuse for it when you're at a prestigious award ceremony like that where people come together 
to lift people up for the art. That's what it should be about. Um, for someone to just take, to take it upon themselves and, you know, make, make that kind of statement, you know, of, of hitting a fellow actor like that, that's unbecoming. I mean, that is just, there really, uh, there is no call for that. You know, that type of, that kind of uh, violent response is just, it's, it's reprehensible. Well, yeah. That's even the verbiage is, of that. Well, anyway, we've, we've spent a lot of time yeah. talking about it, but uh, let's move on to other things. Uh, so, Dave, uh, I know that you probably worked with uh, Bernie Mattinson for a number of years, and he had recently passed away at the age of 87 this week. He's Disney's longest tenured employee, and uh, I can tell you that I had met him once at D23, and he was just the nicest gentleman. So nice. Well, you know something? All I can say is that uh, I had known Bernie uh, my entire career at the Walt Disney Animation Studios, um, saw him on a regular basis, had lunches with him, um, you know, visited him in his office, uh, chatted with him, interviewed him, uh, over the years. Uh, he is probably one of the nicest people there was in the industry. And I know that, you know, I say that about a lot of people, uh, often, but, but Bernie truly was, I, I don't think there's anybody out there that could say a, a, a bad thing about Bernie. He was he was a tremendous talent. Uh, he was an incredibly nice guy. Um, there, there's nothing uh, that you could say uh, to diminish the fact that this guy really was a legend. And you know, on June fourth of this year, he would have been at the Walt Disney Company as a continuous employee for 70 years. Oh, that's amazing. Can you imagine that? His amazing. mother dropped him at the Buena Vista Gate, the guard shack at the Buena Vista Gate at the Walt Disney Studios in Burbank in 1953. Oh my goodness. And he he was fresh out of high school. He was 18. He had uh been dropped there with a portfolio to uh get a job. His mother said, get a job. She dropped him at the gate. He walks up to the guard shack. And this this is how Bernie told me the story. He said there was a security guard named Pappy. You can't make this stuff up. That's awesome. Right. And he and he told Pappy he was there to apply for a job. And uh, and uh, Pappy asked him, do you have an appointment? And Bernie said, no. And he says, well, I can't let you in unless you have an appointment. He goes, well, my mother dropped me off. She's not going to be back for an hour. And so Pappy felt bad for him and had him come and sit inside the guard shack. And after a little bit of time, decided to look at Bernie's portfolio himself. So he looked at Bernie's portfolio in the guard shack. Now, this is the security guard. And he thought he thought the portfolio was pretty good. So he picked up the phone and he called the guy in personnel and the guy in personnel uh, said, well, you know, send him in. So he, Bernie went into to the personnel department and they looked at his portfolio and they liked it and they thought it was pretty good, but they didn't have any openings in the animation department, but they had an opening in traffic. And on the studio property, the traffic department are the guys that ride around on bicycles, delivering mail to the various people and buildings all over the studio. Right. Uh, or, or, you know, pushing the cart down the hallway and delivering mail to the offices. Right. Yeah, yep. So he took it. 
That was, that was the job that was available. He took it. And, uh, the first week that he was working at the studio in 1953 on the Friday, he was told to go up to Walt's office and pick up a check for $300 and go cash it and then bring the cash back. Cause that was Walt's pocket money for the coming week. Yeah. And he did that for a while. And on his lunch breaks, he got to know some of the animation guys and started doing some training on his lunch breaks and doing some tests and things and eventually got hired into the animation department. Take advantage of every opportunity. Yeah. And he was there for 70 years. That is, I mean, all for all intents and purposes, I'm just going to say he's, you know, three months shy of 70 years, but it's 70 years at at the Walt Disney company. I don't think there's going to be another employee that is going to break that record. No, I don't think so. But uh, what what a body of work, as we usually say here on the show. And what an inspiring story, Dave. I love that story. Yeah. Um, And, you know, something Bernie, Bernie uh, wore a lot of different hats. You know, he he was an assistant. He was an animator, uh, you know, producer, a director, story artist, story guy, story consultant. I mean, you know, he he ran the gamut and he's really going to be missed because he he was just a uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he was an institution uh, and many of us who knew him. Uh, always felt like he was just going to always be there, you know, and, uh, and he was a fixture and uh, it's, it's, a, it was a sad day last week uh, when the news broke that he had passed away. Yeah. There was a nice touching statement on Instagram that the Disney uh, Walt Disney animation uh, business unit put out, which was great, but uh, he'd been working on so many films from sleeping beauty all the way to Mulan, you know, he's worked on these magnificent films. And then, as you said, he was the longest tenured employee at the Walt Disney company, 23,651 days of service that was only held previously by longtime Imagineer John Hench. That's right. That's an amazing, amazing thing. But once again, you will be missed. And uh, thank you for being such a great dude, you know, um, yeah, yeah. It, it was it was incredibly nice, man. I I put a nice picture of of me with him and Irene Mackey and Howard Green up on my Facebook page. Very nice. Yes, I saw that. That's great. Um, okay, so we have more passings here, and we hate to talk about this, but uh, you know, this actor, I I guess he he'd been he'd had his time in the sun. Back in the uh, late 90s, you know, Tom Sizemore, Saving Private Ryan, Private Ryan, Heat, Natural Born Killers, so many great films that I've seen that I absolutely love. Um, he passes away at the age of 61, very, very young. Um, this was this was really sad. I mean, you know, he had an astounding like 230 screen credits and apparently 33 more credits to come. Yeah. On stuff he's already done that hasn't been released yet. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and it was really kind of a shock, but not a shock, if you know what I mean, because he had a lot of demons. He had his run ins with the law. Uh, he had addiction issues. Uh, and I'm I'm sure the drug use, you know, uh, the first thing that crossed my mind when he had a brain aneurysm was maybe the drug use contributed to this. I sure. don't know. But uh, it was so sad. He had this brain aneurysm and uh, just went into a coma. 
Uh, and, you know, the doctors basically said there was nothing they could do. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. He had a lot of, uh, a lot of demons and a lot of issues, but, um, you know, maybe he'll now be able to find some peace. Tom Sizemore. Right. Then 61. 61. Wow. Now, someone that has lived a long life, uh, at the age of 93, recently passed away. That's Riku Browning, the gill man from Creature of the Black Lagoon. And I remember that uh, that iconic character. And uh, he's been doing the, the tour circuit, you know, um, you know, Absolutely. talking to fans I and mean, stuff you know, for the a Black, long time. The Creature from the Black Lagoon is like, you know, one of the classic horror, uh, uh, you know, films. You know, it's right up there with the Dracula and Frankenstein movies and, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon, the blob. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> and he also had his uh, day in the sun with uh, the James Bond films as yes. well, which was really cool. He directed the Harpoon fight and Thunderball, which I love. Also, Never Say Never Again. And then Caddyshack as well. So he did some directing there. So just a lot of great stuff and definitely part of that, that old school Hollywood, you know, Jack of many traits. Uh, he definitely yeah. applied it there. So once again, the Gill man, Riku Browning passes away at the age of 93. And then here we have another one, uh, 89 years young, Ted Donaldson, the actor and father knows best, which I, a great show. And a tree yeah, grows he played in Brooklyn. Little boy on Father's knows, Father Knows Best. That's it. And uh, he was in the film Tree uh, Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Yep. Um, you know what was sad about reading his obituary? What's that? The fact that they had the, the he has no survivors. Oh. Uh, that he lived in an apartment. Uh, he has no survivors. And that some friends were doing a... Um, you know, uh, like a Kickstarter to raise money for uh, funeral costs. Mm. That is that is sad. I hope that he wasn't alone uh, during that time. It's it's yeah. sad to see you know people pass and they pass alone in their home and things of that nature. You just hope yeah. that uh, that they had some friends and and maybe not family in this case, but you know, he had some friends that were able to maybe take care of him or at least check in on him, but it's, it's really sad. So, well, there you go. But you know, something I have to say with all of the folks who have passed away this past week that we talked about, they leave behind an incredible body of work that celebrates their life. You know, and that, that, that to me is, is the silver lining to, you know, the circle of life, if you will. And it's great that here on Skull Rock Podcast, we can actually bring, uh, you know, shine a light on their work and hopefully they'll be able to check it out here uh, over the next week and, and check out some of their work. So, yeah, uh, you know, mission accomplished there. Well, now it is time for our awesome interview with animation legend Willie Ito. Check it out right now on Skull Rock Podcast. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast Interview Time Well, Al John, once again We have got a fantastic guest We've got the legendary Animator and uh, Animation artist Willie Ito uh, With us, and I am so thrilled Willie, to have you in the house So welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast I really appreciate it And as you can hear, our studio audience Is going yes. nuts for you 
<laughs> so, <laughs> I, I have to tell you, Willie, I've been I've been waiting a long time uh, for us to have you on the show. Uh, I know we talked back in November at the CTN Expo, right. and you were kind enough to sign your book uh, that was out, uh, the Three Tuners. Uh, so it's a thrill to have you here, and and I want to say I always ask our guests. How'd you get into animation? How did it all start for you? Well, basically for me, I was five years old. I was sitting in my neighborhood theater facing this big screen and in living Technicolor, seven little men marched across the screen singing, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. And I says, that's it. That's what I want to be. Now that was that was the seven dwarfs, <laughs> but but that was the was that the premiere of uh, that that was the first run of Snow White, wasn't it? Uh, uh, no, it was n- now in our neighborhood theater. Okay, yeah, uh, uh, the but, first run was down, downtown on Market Street, and then uh, you know it finally came to our neighborhood. But it, but it was in wide release at that point. But what year oh, is yes. this? What yes. what year is that? Well, uh, let's see. Uh, is that 1937? 1937? 1934, Okay, 1939. Okay, 39. 1939. And that's when I says, that's it. That's what I want to be, a cartoonist. Wow. And that pretty much cemented my ambition uh, from age five on. Uh, you know, I... Um, I used to collect all of the uh, Walt Disney comic books, the big little books, even coloring books. And uh, uh, I, I was into funny animals. So uh, along with the Disney, I was collecting all the Looney Tunes and, and uh, Walter Landscart uh, comic books and all that, you know. And then um, after the movie, we went to our local neighborhood Woolworth five and dime store for our usual after movie treat, uh, ice cream, soda, and a hamburger. And then we sort of roamed around the Woolworth store and I saw that it's a dopey bank. Okay. Yeah. And I says, Hey, uh, my dad, uh, could I have that? You know, I think, I think back then uh, something of that nature probably cost about, 20 cents, you know. So let, I just want to let our listeners know you're, you're pointing over your shoulder at a, at a dopey bank. And, and is that made out of ceramic or is it? Yeah, it, it it's so, no, it's not um, uh, really breakable. It's sort of like a wood uh, uh, composition type of thing. Okay. So very sturdy. And this is still pretty much in mint shape. And this is, my original Disney Anna toy, which I've had since I was five years old. Wow. 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 So from the late 1930s, you've had that all these years. Yep. And, and then, of course, all the other uh, goodies in my collection was things that I acquired later. Yeah. But that, that survived. Now, what happened is during the war, when, when Pearl Harbor hit, yeah. Uh, Japantown, uh, my little um, uh, community, you know, we, we were pretty much uh, on lockdown because, first of all, 
everyone in our community was afraid to venture outside of the uh, Japantown community. And this is in San Francisco. This was in San Francisco. Yeah. And because of the anti-Japanese sentiment, yeah, uh, yeah, we we didn't want to venture too far away from home. In fact, other Asian groups like Filipinos and Chinese, they had to wear a badge saying, "I'm not Japanese." Really? Yeah. Otherwise, wow. uh, you know, they they could get accosted in in the streets. Now, uh, Los Angeles had the largest. Japanese American community. Little Tokyo, right? That's why they were called Little Tokyo. San Francisco had the second largest Japanese American community, and we were known as Little Osaka. Ah. And so I pretty much grew up in my Japanese community. And, um, you know. And did you you speak Japanese? we, We had to go to Japanese school. Okay. So at four o'clock after we got off of uh, American school, we would go up to the uh, local Buddhist church and then sit down with our hands clasped. And then the sensei would come in and the discipline (laughs) was so different from American school. Now, now you couldn't be screaming and yelling and, and drawing cartoons on the margins of your work path. You sat there with your hands clasped, and uh, you, you would bow, and uh, and you know I had that tendency to get a little bored and start doing little sketches on my notepad, and whack, a ruler would be whacked, uh, you know, wrapping me on my yeah. wrist. Yeah, it was very disciplined, and so. But most of us in the uh, Japanese American community, uh, we did go to Japanese school, and we were learning the Japanese language because most of the people uh, were still like first and second generation Japanese. And, and were you second generation? Were your parents? I'm, I'm actually third. My, oh, so so your grandparents came to to San Francisco. Yes, correct. Uh, okay. And then my father actually was born in Hawaii and my mother was born and raised in the city of San Francisco. So basically that's that was my whole whole lifestyle, you know, being in in the um, uh, Japanese community. And then when the war broke out and when we were sent to um, camps, I spent three years with nothing but my Japanese neighbors. And then after the war, when we returned to uh, the city, uh, of course, we all came back to our old community. At that time, the Japanese community was uh, taken over by a lot of um, Southerners that came out west to work in Alameda and in the war efforts, you know, shipbuilding in Alameda and, um, you know, um, uh, D- defense the, the, in the d- defense uh, industries. Let, let me. Ask, so so this was, you know, President Roosevelt signed the executive order 9066 during World War Two. And that was to move the uh, anybody of Japanese descent that was on the West Coast into these what, what are really internment camps. Right. I mean, that's what they were called. Yeah. Originally, we used to uh, refer to it as concentration camps. Right. 
because of the fact that it was barbed wired. Yeah. And they had um, uh, uh, guard towers on all four corners. Yeah. Armed with a military guard with the guns pointed in. Right, right. So we said, wow, we're in a concentration camp. But through the years, we, um, the community felt that, you know, it should be probably modified to a relocation center or internment camps. Uh, but people still insist, no, no, you better call it what it was, a concentration camp. Yeah. And, and let me ask you this, when, when that order was signed, did and you were told to pack up. Did, did people? Yeah. Did people lose their their homes? Did they have to sell their homes? Did oh, they yeah. they couldn't just like lock the door and and go to the internment no. camp? No, they they sold whatever they could because yeah. we had no idea what our future held. Right. Right. Now the fact that my father was American born, yeah, he was a little more optimistic. Mm-hmm. So he felt, wow, you know, he just bought our home yeah. in 1939. And he thought, my gosh, you know, uh, uh, suddenly he's going to have to leave it and leave it behind. So he asked uh, w- one of our good family friend, uh, family, uh, Chinese family, if he and his family would like to move into our home. And um, living it free, of course, and yeah. uh, just keep an eye on, on it. And whatever eventually would happen, whether we would actually re- return or, you know, somehow be shipped off to Japan or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, him and his family uh, stayed in the house, took care of it, painted it and all that. So when the war was Coming to an end, we returned to San Francisco and actually was able to go back into our own homes. And, and so your friends had taken care of it, and yeah, and it was ready for you to to reoccupy. Right, and and of course many of the other returnees had nothing to come back to. Yeah, the only thing they came back to San Francisco's so Japan Town was it was familiar to them. Yeah, so they came back and then. Uh, they were housed in, in the auditorium of the Buddhist church or the uh, local YMCA. They set up cots and all that. So the uh, irony of this whole story is when we got incarcerated and went to camp, we had to sleep on fold away army cots and all yeah. that. And then come mm-hmm. back and now you're free. The yeah. war is ending. Uh, Japan was losing at, at that point anyway. Yeah. Yet they had to come back and start from square one to rebuild their lives. Right, right. Yeah. Was there, uh, I, I don't want to spend that much time on this. And I, I mean, I could spend the entire show talking about this because it's, it, it, it's I think, a dark chapter in the U.S. Uh, US history. You know, and uh, I, I'm just curious, was there animosity uh, uh, amongst the Japanese community? Well, actually, we we sort of have a saying, katakanai, it means uh, in essence, well, you know, it happened, but best to just move on 
and forget about it, you know. Um, but, but of course, the people that were now uh, residing in our uh, Japantown community really resented us coming back. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and so, you know, there was a lot of uh, fights and things uh, because, you know, it was uh, uh, Japantown was now known as Bronstown, you know, and uh, so uh, we we had to slowly reclaim the area. Yeah. And uh, so that, that was kind of tough, especially hey. for the older people. Yeah, of course. Yeah. How, how old were you when you came back to San Francisco? Okay, I was eight when uh, we went into camp and uh, came back 11 or 12 years old. Yeah. Okay. And then, then I started middle school. Yeah, and so you went back to school. And yeah. did you start developing your artistic talent? Were you, were you drawing at the camp I and was then drawing all the time? The, yeah, right through camp. See, while we were incarcerated, of course, we didn't have dry goods stores or department stores or right. in camp. We had to order through catalogs. Mm -hmm. And so uh, every three months, we would be issued a new edition of the Sears and Roebuck catalog or the Montgomery Ward catalog. Yeah, yeah. From there, we would order uh you know, uh, our immediate needs, new yeah. pair of jeans or a shirt or something. And, um, but they uh, kept your family together, right? All the families yeah, we, were yeah, like we you, were you together, but yeah. we were all crammed into one little room. So okay. we were, my mother, father, my sister and I, we were in one little room. Yeah. Uh, no privacy. Right. And of course, latrine was, off-site, so we had to trudge through uh, inclement weather, raining or snow, yeah. or whatever, to trudge to the latrine and all that, you know. Were you, were you, were you guys treated well uh, or as well, well as could be? Well, I guess as a kid, you know, you, you kind of uh, looked at it like, a, like an adventure. Yeah. But the older people was a lot of hardship. But then getting back to the catalog bit, uh, every three months with a new catalog, my father would save the expired ones for fuel so he could put it in our pot belly stove during the winter. But I, he would give me one of the expired catalogs. And then what I would do is on the margin of the catalogs, I would do little animation bouncing ball and make the, your own little flip book. Then I had my flip book. Uh, so that was my uh, early foray into the art of animation. That's awesome. So oh. I was going to say, so you, 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 you guys came back uh, to San Francisco and you continued your schooling there. Um, yes. And tell then, me when you got into high school, were there art classes? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's 10 high school at that time in, in San Francisco. And because San Francisco is a pretty compact that you didn't necessarily ha have to go to the high school within your uh, region. So you, you could pick and choose. And so Polytechnic High School, where I signed up, was the only high school in the city that offered cartooning 101. <laughs> 
So naturally, I signed up and, and uh, attended Bali. And so for four years during my uh, uh, high school days, I uh, uh, took cartoon, cartooning and art classes. And, and you know, I'm not a jock, but <laughs> because of the fact that, um, and of course, our high school was noted for their varsity championship football team. So I, I would see all these uh our uh, varsity uh, uh, football players, you know, with their jackets on and with all the cute uh, cheerleaders hanging all over them. But I was, um, you might say, uh, accepted into this in crowd because I used to do all the posters for the big games. Ah. And uh, and all of the uh, San Francisco City High Schools, there are mascots were animal characters. And so I I would have a ball uh, making the posters for their uh, for the big game and uh, and then I you know I drew in the uh, school yearbook and uh, the school newspaper and all that. So I guess my cartooning helped me kind of uh, eat my way into the in crowd. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I honestly, you, you you said I'm not a jock. I'm like, I think that's like a common expression amongst cartoonists. <laughs> <laughs> so so from from high school, uh, where did you go from uh, after high school? Well, I I um, I was going to maybe apply for. California uh, College of Design or one of the local schools in the uh, Northern California area. Yeah. But in the meantime, I uh, signed up and I was attending San Francisco City College. And I had an art teacher, uh, Mr. Carl Beats, who happened to be a protege of Don Graham. Ah. And so um, towards my end of my two years where I was going to graduate with an AA degree, um, you know, I kept thinking, you know, my, my cohorts, my friends that we all were in camp together, they wanted to prove that, um, you know, that they could be substantial uh, citizens. So when they graduated high school, uh, they applied for Stanford and uh, Cal and San Francisco State College, and they were aspiring to become pharmacists or pre-med or engineers and, and, and the whole bit. And then I started thinking, you know, to be a cartoonist, that's somewhat frivolous and, and not very humanitarian. So maybe I should seek something a, a little more substantial. So I went to my uh, art teacher and I says, you know, I think I'm going to change my major. I think I'm going to go on and go to pre-med and, and learn to become a medical illustrator. He looked me straight in the eye, shook his head and said, no, you're going to go down to Los Angeles. I'm writing you a letter of introduction to Don Graham at Chouinard's Art Institute. And, um, and then we'll see, you know, hopefully he'll award you with a scholarship. And that's exactly what happened. I came down and met with Don Graham 
And then I had a scholarship. So I started classes at Chenard's, and my instructor were uh, like uh, Mark Davis uh-huh. and T. He. Oh, yeah, T. He. And, uh, and, um, uh, and uh, you know, th- there was a whole array of uh, great teachers, Don, wow. uh, Don, Don Graham being one of them, too. And so I thought to myself, you know, I'm, I'm finally away from home. I'm finally away from my uh, uh, Japanese community. I'm down here on my own. But I was a little intimidated because I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm leaving the comfort of my family and friends and coming down to what I perceive as an all-white Hollywood studios and all that, you mm-hmm. know. So, uh, but when I was at Chenard's, there were fellow Japanese Americans in my class, people like Jimmy Murakami. Yeah. Later with the Murakami. Murakami and Wolf, yeah. Yeah, and Roy Morita. And and so, and they were all um, being groomed because um, uh, Tihi really liked their style. And of course, Tihi was a director at UPA at that time. So, you know. And by the way, Tihi was one of my instructors at Cal Arts. Oh yeah, yeah. So I I knew Tihi. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, incredible. He, yeah. I didn't realize that Tihi was teaching that early on. Oh yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And uh, so you know, I I my future at Chenard's looked very bright, but I thought to myself, you know, just for the heck of it. I, I do have my portfolio with me. It was, of course, a student portfolio, but I'm going to use it as a ticket to see the inside of the Disney studio. And so so I just went on a whim and uh, picked up the phone and called the Disney studio and says, uh, I would like to come in and show my portfolio. And at that time, a fellow named Ken Sealing, who was the uh, uh, one of the personnel people, mm-hmm. said, yeah, well, come on in and made an appointment. So on that particular day, it was it was June and Burbank was like probably four o'clock in the afternoon, about 90 degrees. <laughs> and here I'm wearing my San Francisco vest, you know, a tweed sport coat and uh, cotton uh, slacks and, you know, it was a warm weather clothes. I walk onto the uh, Disney studio a lot, carrying my heavy student portfolio. Perspiration just dripping down my face. And from from that gate, the Buena Vista gate, all yeah. the way uh, up Mickey Avenue to the animation building. And then I open the door and I step in and wow. I'm hit by this beautiful refrigerated air conditioning. I said, oh, my gosh, this is great. So I find myself uh, to the elevator on the middle, uh, around the middle of the uh, first floor, and I press the button, and the door opens. I I step in, and, and I say, oh, four. So I press four. At that time, personnel was up on the fourth floor, but so was Wed Enterprises, which today is known as uh, Disney Imagineering. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I pressed for this elevator door. It 
starts to close. And then suddenly it swings open. And then standing before me is Walt Disney. Really? <laughs> and, and he's with an associate. And they're in deep conversation. But as, as they step in, Walt sees me in the corner, back corner of the elevator. So the power And he gives me a polite nod of the head. And then they both turn around and they continue their conversation. And now the elevator is going up to the fourth floor. The world's longest ride. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm looking at the back of Walt's head thinking to myself, oh, my God. Literally, oh, my God. (laughs) So, (laughs) So we finally get up to the fourth floor. The door swings open and they both exit and go screen right. And, and I go over to pe- personnel. And um, uh, Ken Sealing uh, gets on the intercom and, and uh, says that Mr. Ito is here for his appointment. So uh, after a beat, a couple of guys walk into the uh, room. One fella named uh, Andy England, who... Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Big Andy comes in. And following behind Andy is this little Asian guy walking like droopy dog. <laughs> and I, I look at him and I'm thinking, oh, he looks Asian. And so Ken Sealing says, this is Andy England, um, animation supervisor or what, whatever the title was. And then this is Ivo Takamoto. And I'm thinking, Takamoto, well, that's, that's Japanese, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he, he had a very stoic look on his face. So so I I did feel a little intimidated. But then after we were introduced, he, he had a nice warm smile and we chatted a little. Then they the three of them with my portfolio went into the conference room. But I was asked to just stay in reception and wait, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, wow. You know, here I am, actually, inside of the Walt Disney Studio. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna really study hard and make myself a real professional portfolio in the four years that I will be at Chenard. Then I'm gonna return seriously to mm. find a job. You know, and so that was my uh, motivation. And then they. Uh, Ken Sealing comes out and says, well, Mr. Ito, thank you for coming in. Don't call us. We'll call you. And I, I thought to myself, hey, that's fine. I'll call you in four years. And so, of course, after I was dismissed, I took my sweet time leaving the studio. <laughs> because you, you remember how they had all the print. Well, back then, the originals were all displayed. In the main hallway on the first level, showing the whole animation process step by step. But it was all the original artwork, which which in later years was was all replaced with reproductions. I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, boy, I, I, I really took my sweet time leaving that day. So about two weeks later, I came home from one of my night classes. And of course, at that time, one of my night duties uh, uh, before uh, we we exited the uh, school for the night was sweeping up the uh, ceramics uh, pottery department. I mm. was 
covered with with uh, clay dust and all that. And I come home to my little uh, student's rooming house and stuck on my doors a Western Union telegram. Now, back in the 50s, if you got a Western Union telegram, it either meant good news or bad news. Right. And being away from home, I'm anticipating the worst. So I gingerly take the uh, telegram and open it very carefully. And then on the headline, this is a Walt Disney production, 500 South Buena Vista and all that. And so as I read on, they uh, were inviting me to come in Monday morning to take a test. So that Monday morning, I uh, found my way to the studio and um, I met with um, uh, one of the uh, supervisors, Johnny Bond. Was yeah, his, Johnny Bond, yeah. And um, he, he came up and he had a cigar that he was chewing on and it was all wet. And, uh, and he, he says, well, here, you sit here. And then he gave me a bunch of model sheets of a potpourri of different Disney characters. Yeah. Alice in Wonderland, Cinderella, Donald Duck, and all that. He says, okay, now you're sit here. And just because it's a light box, box or a light board, don't trace. You have to draw these characters in different poses and attitudes and all that. So, um, which I did, I, I spent the morning uh, doing all the... Um, uh, uh, assignment. Then I, um, uh, you know, uh, took a lunch break. So I went down to the commissary and my people watched and all that. And then I came back after lunch and Johnny Bond came and said, well, we like what you did. And so you're hired. And I'm thinking, what? I'm hired? He said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to start you in the lady department. And I'm thinking, lady department? You know, Disney was doing nothing but uh, Alice in Wonderland and Cinderella and, and Snow White and, you know, fairy tales. Yeah. I have heard of uh, a film, a lady. So my assumption was lady department. I guess my uh, my entry level job will be in ink and paint department with all the ladies. Yeah. Maybe I'll be mixing paints and doing whatever. And, and, uh, so, so he says, well, go down to, uh, milk calls office and his assistant that's sitting in there with him will get you started. So I go down the D wing and, uh, milk call and come in. Then I open the door and sitting right by the doors, he will talk and he, he said, yeah, I was expecting you, so we'll get you started. And then he uh, got a couple of drawings off the thing and, and roughly showed me how to do in-betweens. And they were a close-up of Lady from the iconic spaghetti kissing scene. So, so Lady and the Tramp. You were, you were put into the Lady and the Tramp unit. But it was the, it was the Lady character for Lady and the Tramp. Exactly. Yeah. And then, of course, my very first assignment was the very iconic spaghetti kissing scene. You know, oh, that's awesome. Now, what year is this? 1954. Okay, 1954. 1954. I was I was 19 years old 
<laughs> and, and you were still going to Chenard. So, so did, did you have to quit Chenard? Did you go talk to Don Graham or? Yeah. Well, what happened is my intention was to just continue going night classes and Saturday classes. Then we all got noticed that uh, we're going to go on overtime because Lady and the Tramp was behind schedule. Yeah, over budgeted, of course. What what else is new, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so of course, at that time, I was making ninety seven cents an hour. So any overtime was, <laughs> sounded very good to me. So I chose to uh, work overtime, and um, uh, so then I ended up basically just going to uh, school classes on Saturdays at Chenard. Yeah, at Chenard, okay. you know, and uh, then the summer ended, and my my um, uh, scholarship was basically a summer scholarship, mm-hmm. but it would have been picked up if I continued, and so that was my one big big regret that I never continued uh, at Chenard and got got a degree and mm-hmm. all that. So when I used to review portfolios, uh, uh, I, I would always tell the young students coming in with a portfolio, you know, uh, make sure you study life drawing. That's the, a very important uh, factor of wanting to be an animator, you know, be anatomically wise and correct. And uh, if you could finish school, you know, do it because it's very important. Mm. Because, um, there, there's a lot of aspects of what I eventually started doing that I would think to myself, God, if I had only, you know, learned this phase of it a little more or that. Yeah. So, so it was important. But, uh, uh, yeah, so that's basically how, you know, my my career started at Disney. And, and, and so you're at Disney, you're working on uh, Lady and the Tramp. Do you see Walt Disney around frequently or every so often in the hallways? We used to, I used to see him a lot because, you know, coming from San Francisco, I was a stage struck kid, you know, and I was in awe of Hollywood. Yeah. During that period in 1954, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was being filmed. And that's being shot on the studio lot. They built that special soundstage that had the water tank in it. Yeah. And John Hench's uh, hydraulic uh, uh, giant squid. Giant squid, yeah. I watched all that being filmed. And Walt would look over and see. (laughs) During... Uh, work hours uh, sitting in the soundstage watching this. And then another one of my very favorite show uh, at that time was Jack Webb's Dragnet. Yeah. And Mark Seven production was renting the the smaller soundstage next to the big one. So I used to wander over there and watch Jack Webb uh, shooting Dragnet. And then, of course, the Mouseketeers were rehearsing in one of them. And then you go to the um, uh, work workshop area in, in Maple was set up there, and they were uh, doing a lot of the uh, Disneyland attractions and 
And um, so and, that- and, and 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 Wed Wed Enterprises was also on the studio lot because yeah. Yeah. Walt was in the throes of uh, of planning and building Disneyland. Yeah, yeah. So, so I I, I guess you might say Walt was all everywhere. Over- he yeah. was everywhere. He was all over the place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So- that must have been an exciting time on the studio lot. It was, especially for someone that uh, just came down from San Francisco and then, boom, suddenly exposed to Hollywood, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it, it was uh, quite exciting. And, um, uh, you know, I just couldn't get enough of it. Then, of course, Lady and the Tramp uh, started to wind down. And so um, I was called into a- a- Andy Ingman's office and says, um, well, we're going to have to let you go for about three months because Sleeping Beauty is not quite ready for you, your department, you know. And so take take that time and, um, you know, we'll continue school or whatever. So so I, uh, that same summer I visited uh, Walt Disney, I also made a visit to uh, Warner Brothers. And I showed my portfolio to Johnny Burton who was a production manager there. And he says, you know, we like your portfolio. However, we don't train. So I says, oh, yeah, sure. You know, that's good. Then I pick up the phone after uh, Andy Ingman uh, told me that I'll be off for three months. I went right to my uh, bullpen. And, you know, there was about six of us in the bullpen, including Corny Cole. <laughs> yes, Corny Cole. So um, I pick up the phone and I uh, I call Johnny Burton. I says, hey, I'm experienced now. He says, come on in Monday morning. So, so you had a job right away. Right away. Yeah, Friday. Uh, at, so Friday you ended at Disney and, and Monday you started at Warner Brothers. At Warner's. But late, uh, sometime after lunch, Corny got called in. Then he came back and oh. I just got laid off myself. I say, hey, Corny, call Johnny Burton. And, and Corny did. And he says, oh, he told me to come in Monday. So the two of us together started at Termite Terrace that yeah. in Monday. Did, did the miss, miss a beat. And we both started in the bullpen. But because of the fact that we had the Disney training, uh, I guess um, uh, our anime, well, Chuck Jones, Chuck yeah. Jones saw the, uh, both Corny and myself's uh, uh, cleanup work and, and whatever. And, you know, our animator at that time, you know, would flip the scene and say, hey, who, who did these uh, cleanups and assistant work? And said, well, there's two new guys in the uh, bullpen. And, um, so he says, uh, uh, you know, I want these guys, you know. So uh, Chuck Jones invited us to join the Chuck Jones unit. Mm-hmm. And I was assigned to Ken Harris. And uh, Corny Cole was assigned to uh, an animator named Dick Thompson or mm-hmm. Dick Thomas or Thompson. And, and our career at Warner Brothers started. And about three months later, we did get a call back uh, from Disney uh, inviting us to come back on Sleeping Beauty. And I, I told um, uh, 
uh, well, I told him that uh, I'm not at Warner's, and I've been promoted to assistant animator because basically when I left, I was uh, like an in-betweener. Right, right. And so uh, they said, well, the best we could do is hire you back in, uh, as a breakdown. Right, which which is between in betweener, you go in between a breakdown assistant. So it was it, it was still a step back for you from Warner right. Brothers, right? And now I was making the assistant animator pay, and so I asked Andy, Andy is what well, would I have to take a, a cut? I said, well, we'll bring you back as a breakdown. So I I said thanks, but no thanks. And then of course they used to say, if Disney invites you back. And you refuse, you know, they'll never welcome you back again. <laughs> yeah, never say never, though, right? Yeah. So basically, my um, my uh, career, you know, at Warner's, and then I went on to, like, Clampets and Hanna-Barbera and all that. But after 22 years of working on Saturday morning cartoons, I felt like I, I was burnt out because of the pressure, boom, 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 you know. And so I thought, you know, I think I might just freelance, just pick up storyboard work or layout work and whatever. And so that was my plan. And one of the, one of the freelance I did was Disney's comic strip department. And I, I, I was given an assignment to do a 10-page Mickey yeah. uh, comic uh, page and it was one of these things where you know I w- went to the studio I pick up picked up the script brought it home plopped it on top of my desk and totally forgot about it or maybe I was procrastinating whatever <laughs> then I get a phone call from uh, Tom Goldberg and says hey remember that script I assigned you how are you doing on it I said, oh, my gosh, I'm halfway through it. And so he said, well, would you mind bringing in <laughs> the five pages tomorrow morning? <laughs> Needless to say, I sat at my drawing board all night, and I managed to get five pages you know, done. And then I took it in, and uh, uh, at that time, I... Uh, Tom Goldberg was the editor, and a fellow named uh, Don McLaughlin was the uh, uh, head of our uh, creative department. And they they looked looked at it, says, "Yeah, yeah, you look, looks good." And then so they said, "Well, why don't you go home and finish the other five pages, and then you could bill us for it, so you'll get paid." I said, "Oh, okay, fine." So I go home and and. I'm I'm not home for more than two hours when the phone rings, and this is, uh, would you be interested in, on a staff job? Now, what year is this? Uh, this was uh, let me see, it would be six years later, so fifty four to nineteen sixty ish. No, no, I'm sorry, uh, twenty twenty two years, so it, it was nineteen seventy six. Oh, we, yeah. we, we've jumped way far ahead. Hold on a second. Okay. I, I, I'm going to rewind us because okay. you were working at Warner Brothers and, 
You, so you were at Disney, you got laid off, you went to Warner Brothers, right, right. you did uh, Speedy Gonzalez, and you worked on the great One Froggy Evening. That is right. really one That is one of my favorites. In fact, I, I have a piece of merchandise up on top of my oh, desk okay. here from One yeah. Froggy Evening, uh, and Broomstick Bunny, and What's Opera Doc, and Robin Hood Daffy. I mean, you did some incredible Warner Brothers shorts. Yeah, they were, they were uh, you know, a, such a fun break, you know. And then... Um, uh, and you were there for... How long were you at Warner Brothers for? I was there for six years, and we were... We were um, fortunately, Chuck knew that Corny and I wanted to do go beyond just being uh, in animation. So right. uh, we did uh, layouts and, and storyboards and... Mm. and uh, whatever. And then um, Frizz Freeling's um, layout man, his name was Holly Pratt, was uh, being groomed to become uh, a director. Mm -hmm. And so they were looking for someone to train as uh, as a, lay a permanent layout man. So um, Frizz went to Chuck and says, hey, uh, you think we could borrow Willie for one picture? So I went over and worked with Holly Pratt and Chris Ripley, and I, I did my uh, very first layout job uh, on, on a Bugs Bunny Yosemite Sam short called Prince Violent. Yeah. And, and it was later changed to print, uh, Prince Varmint because Violent was for television a little too. It was too violent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which offered me my very first uh, screen credit as a layout man. Yeah, so that that was then. Then I get a call from Bob Clampett and says, "Hey, we, you know, we're we're going to be doing the uh, uh, Beanie and Cecil show, which was originally a puppet show. Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but uh, for ABC and Mattel." Uh, it's going to be animated and we understand you, you like to do character designs. So he offered me a job to come over and convert the puppet characters into animated versions, you know? Sure. So that's what I did. And then I was in layout over there. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, being in Cecil only lasted for one season, 22 half hours. Right. And he was uh, unable to pick up a, another uh, time slot because that time slot went to Hanna-Barbera because they uh, Hanna-Barbera sold the Jetsons. Right. And so I got a call from Hanna-Barbera saying, I understand yeah. So, so you know what, Willie, because I we're bumping up against time. Oh, oh my God. So what I'm going to say is, why don't we put a pin in that? Okay. And we're going to come back for part two. Oh, okay. And we're going to talk about your entire incredible Hanna-Barbera career because, I mean, it, it's just, I mean, Squidly Diddly and, I mean, the Flintstones and the Jetsons and, you know, Adam Ant and Secret Squirrel. I mean, all of these great classic Hanna-Barbera shows. I want to really spend some time talking about that. So let's say goodbye for now. 
Okay. And I'll see you. I'll, we'll, we'll see you next week for part two. Okay. Excellent. I'll be back. Thanks. Thank you, Willie. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. Willie Ito, just what a great guy. <clears throat> and what great stories, too. Oh, no. He, you know, he's one of the nice guys in the in the business. Got a, a lot of history. Uh, I mean, there's so much to unpack and talk about with him. I'm looking forward to part two next week. I can't. I can't imagine what it was like to be in those internment camps that he mentioned. You know, I had spoken to George Takei uh, when I was really young and George was super nice to me. I was a, I was a big fan when I was a teenager, but I did talk to him about the internment camps and, and of course, you know, he tried to gloss over it maybe because I was young, but uh, it's amazing to me, you know, that this happened and he's got the stories of he calls it being incarcerated. I just found that fascinating, and and just uh, I'm I'm glad that we 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 forged through it as a as a country. But it's just it's hard for me to to just uh, hear that him say that he was incarcerated, you know, because that's really what it was. You know, I I agree with you. And the thing that was so amazing when he talked about it was he he didn't seem to have uh ill will right towards it you know um he he really kind of felt yes it happened but you move on uh and he has such a great disposition and a great outlook 100% i think it's inspiring and i think you know once again his work fueled my saturday mornings for many years some of my beloved characters there at hanna barbera so uh, that's an amazing story. And I look forward to part two next week here on Skull Rock Podcast. Dave, can you believe it? Another show in the can. Wow. It's unbelievable. <laughs> well, once again, thank you so much for tuning in to the program. We do appreciate it. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the show everywhere you get podcasts. We do appreciate it. You can also send us emails. The kids are rowdy right now. The kids are rowdy. You can hear them. <laughs> I can hear them. <laughs> uh, Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com or Aljon at SkullRockPodcast.com. And once again, also on Source Radio at SRSounds.com. Please give it a, a listen. We do appreciate it. Thanks to our, all of our great friends and our podcast partners as well. And uh, you can also check me out, too. Uh, shameless plug for the Dining at Disney podcast. We'd appreciate it if you love Disney and food. All right, Dave, you've got the final word. Well, as always, Al John, uh, you know, if you're interested in uh, any of the articles I have written that are on my website, go to davidbosser.com. There's also a tab for some free stuff. Uh, you can check that out. Uh, also, some of my books are available at theoldmillpress.com. Uh, so check that out. And with that, we'll go out and have a fantastic week. We'll see you back here next week on the Skull Rock Podcast. Podcast.